and welcome everybody to the first of the Conservative Middle East Council's events in our debate series for Conservative Party Conference 2023. I'm Charlotte Leslie and I'm the director of the Conservative Middle East Council. CMEC was set up more than 40 years ago under Margaret Thatcher by Lord Carrington to help Conservative parliamentarians and others understand this nuanced and complex region a little bit better and to build relationships that last decades, not days. It's a pleasure to have you with us in this, albeit slightly bouncy castle, Teletubbies conference venue. Pleasure to see you nonetheless. We've seen an expansion of BRICS both in remit and influence. We've seen a Saudi-Iran rapprochement and an ever more diplomatic and active China. We ask ourselves, what relevance and how does the UK and the West maintain relevance in this changing world and in the Middle East and North Africa, both today and into the future? Here to discuss that this afternoon, I'm very pleased to welcome two world-leading experts. On the end, we have Sir John Jenkins, who has been British ambassador to Syria, Iraq, Libya, and Saudi Arabia. So there's very little this man does not know about diplomacy and the wider region. I'm also delighted to welcome Mina Al-Arabi, who is the editor of the national newspaper based in Abu Dhabi and is a British Iraqi journalist. Mina and John, welcome. Thank you very much for being with us. To kick off, I'm going to ask you first John and then Mina, just to run through very briefly, perhaps in five minutes, where you see the UK's influence in the Middle East today and North Africa today, um, including uh, Middle East, North Africa, UK, the West and NATO, and where you see it going in the future. John, over to you first. Okay, thank you, Charlotte. Uh, uh, <coughs> uh, I was in the Foreign Office actually um, two or three months ago, and a senior official said we've got three questions. One is... Uh, how, do we, uh, how do we rebuild the British image in the Middle East? Uh, the second question is, uh, is our support for a two-state solution in Israel and Palestine doing this more harm than good? And the third one was, uh, what lessons do we learn from the Arab Spring? And I said, well, the first thing uh, to do is to ask better questions. Um, uh, because the way these questions are framed, actually, is assume a sort of um, uh, a view of the, of, the, of the Middle East and North Africa, which is outdated. I mean, a lot of these issues either don't exist in the form they existed, or they exist in a completely different way than the way they did 15, 20 years ago. Um, and in terms of the question of the British image or the British position in the Middle East, the first question uh, you have to ask is, 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 is what are we for uh, in the region? And when I first went to the region in, in, in the early 1980s, uh, I think we still looked at a lot of the states in the region, particularly in the Gulf, as sort of semi-client states. These are states that had been part of, uh, uh, of, of, of Britain's colonial or imperial reach. The Emirates was only 12 years old when they first went to Abu Dhabi. Uh, Bahrain was the same, Kuwait was, was, was 10 years old. But that was, they were all very young, uh, and they were building the institutions of state, quite often from scratch or nearly scratch. It's completely different now uh, uh, in the Gulf. It's partly a function of generations. It's partly a function of the way in which institutions have been built. Uh, it's partly a, a result of economics uh, and the way that power in general around the world has shifted and become more fragmented. Now, I'm not saying that 
that we, we live in a completely multipolar world, because I don't think we do. I think the United States remains a hyperpower. Uh, but I think uh, we've seen the rise of alternative power centers, particularly in China and to a certain extent India. And I think that relationship with China, particularly which we'll talk about, I guess, later, is, uh, is uh, represents an inflection point. And it represents an inflection point for all sorts of reasons. But if you're in the Gulf, it represents an inflection point because that's where your oil and gas exports go. They go east, they go west, they go north. Uh, and I think we're seeing a new, a new age of confidence as well in large parts of the world. Not all. I think the, the, the Great Levant, uh, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, uh, are in deep trouble because they have been formed into into uh, into, into deeply fractured states, highly corrupt states. Um, I think Egypt uh, has severe economic problems, but the states of the Gulf, I think, uh, uh, are doing are doing well, and they have uh, a new generation of leadership. And I think the way that they look at the world is very different from the way that that their predecessors looked at the world. I think that we need to understand this much better than we than we do at the moment. Um, I think there is another aspect to this, which is that the, the, the overhang of the invasion of Iraq uh, and indeed Afghanistan um, uh, remains very powerful. Uh, when I was in Iraq as ambassador between 2009 and 2011, I found it incredibly difficult to get ministers interested uh, in anything to do with Iraq. And, and a lot of that was because Iraq had become a politically toxic issue domestically. I think that has, in many ways, disabled the power of initiative within the Foreign Office and indeed at a higher level within uh, within ministerial circles, and I think that is that is a, that is a problem because unless you have unless you're prepared to put political power uh, oomph behind a policy, uh, it won't work. Uh, so we we do a lot of things on the hoof because ministers uh, and the wider political class and indeed the British electorate have been distracted by the things. I think lastly, I think Brexit clearly had an impact because of the way in which it, it, it affected the way in which governments in this country uh, have uh, had to behave or found themselves behaving over the last uh, five or six years. And I think it's been pretty chaotic. I think trying to form coherent policy in those circumstances, especially when domestic politics has become so, in many ways, so polarized, uh, and you still have the aftermath of Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, uh, has been problematic. I think some of these also apply to the United States. I think you can tell a, 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 an analogous story about France and the collapse of the French position in, uh, in West Africa, the Sahel, um, you're seeing again the unwinding of a traditional network of, of, of clientships and relationships. So there's a whole range of things happening across the Western world. They're happening in different ways in different places. Thank you very much, John. Mina, can I ask for a perspective on us from where you stand in the region? Um, thank you, Charlotte. It's lovely to be here. I haven't attended one of these in about 10 years or so, so it's quite interesting to see the dynamic. Um, you know, just following up uh, what John was saying, that the Middle East has changed, North Africa has changed, as has Britain. The world has changed in the last 20 years, of course, the Iraq War, the anniversary, 20th anniversary of the Iraq War, and the ramifications are, are still both being felt today. Um, I think that people in the region are not sure what the UK stands for. UK has failed in the last at least five years to really explain what British strategic interests look like. The Brexit conversation became all-encompassing for everything, and it was hard for people outside of the whole European dynamic to understand what Britain wanted, 
um, or prioritized. And I think that's something that is still unclear. Um, you know, if we were talking history, there's you know, the continuum, Suez, what happens post-Suez, um, and then, of course, the Iraq War. But really today, most people in the region, particularly young people, don't really care about that. They want to see whether the light, the light, uh, or let the beacons of light around the world. And I think traditionally, you would have my parents' generation would look to the UK as such. I don't believe they would see people my generation or younger would see it that way. Um, I'd say the Arab world has had different experiences with Britain, but the general sense is they know us. They know what what the Arab world was like, and I don't know if you get the same feeling in 10 years or 15 years, but traditionally there's been a sense the Brits know us probably more than America, definitely more than Americans, and probably more than the French, because I think the colonial experience of France was very, very different. Um, I would say there are five drivers today of the relationship with the Arab world. And this is, again, coming from the region, how you see it as, again, somebody who knows the UK intimately. Number one, of course, is security. And security has been a huge driver, continues to be an important driver, especially when it comes to the Gulf countries, Jordan, to a lesser extent to Iraq, but really there's that security paradigm, and of course, that brings in everything from weapon systems, the relationship wider with the UK and the US. Second is trade, uh, hugely important. Um, the UAE, where I'm based, just last year, 23.1 billion pounds of bilateral trade. Um, the GCC figures, I couldn't find the most up-to-date, but in uh, 2019, it was 41.4 billion uh, pounds, and it's definitely expanded since then. And of course, all eyes are now on the possibility of a free trade agreement. So through that, that's actually much clearer in terms of trade, but in terms of also investments coming into the the UK. But of course that is all with a historical background. So everything from Miss Bell in Iraq, the Balfour Declaration, Sudan, Yemen, there's a lot of this historical context that again, the general average person might not care so much about, but it's definitely a backdrop. And that leads us to the political. So the UK is still hugely important as a member of the UN Security Council. The UK is a pen holder on major issues, including when it comes to the GCC. And so that, that maintains that relationship, even if it's taken for granted at a superficial level, those ties are still very strong. And then importantly, the cultural ties, educational institutions, still hugely important. So I think that often when we look at the politics, and we, and we often talk about the problems of not seeing a coherent British strategy when it comes to geopolitics and with strategic interests, those underlying historical, cultural, educational ties are very much there and still strong and should be nurtured. And I think, again, in the last few years, haven't gotten the attention they deserve. Um, there, there are questions about British complacency and a lack of commitment. Uh, at the moment, there is a change in the um, FCDO um, and not having you know, just one minister that sole and focus is the Middle East North Africa. It seems to have been divvied out. Lord Ahmed you know, plays a role but not the same as before, where we had one address, one person that people would come to, they had strong relationships. I think that's had an impact. But importantly, the earthquake of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think often when people talk about the Middle East and North Africa, they don't think about Afghanistan, they think it's separate, but it really isn't separate. And, and to this day, there is a sense of, again, a lack of coherence. Now, this is the shadow of the US. This is very much reflected on the US. But it then also reflects on the UK because of the close partnership, the role that they both have. 
Um, I'd say one final thing is there is an appreciation in um, the Middle East, North Africa region that the general public in the UK isn't too concerned with what's happening in the region. And because of this kind of internal dynamic that's happened in the last five years or so, there's an understanding that it's hard to get the attention of ministers, it's hard to get the attention um, of people because they're thinking about what's the next election, what, what do our constituencies care about. And at the national, we... Um, we just did a poll with Delta Poll um, from the 11th to the 15th of September trying to poll the British public on matters of international affairs. And of course, you can imagine most people are not that interested. And that's having, that's, that's having a reflection. I mean, here it's long-term decisions for a brighter future, but it feels like we're not getting longer-term decisions because there's this polling and focus groups. And what do they say about the region? There's a general sense that they're not interested. Um, what we did find, I'm going to just share a couple of the statistics that we found, is that 46% of 18 to 24-year-old Brits are quite interested in the fact that Saudi Arabia is putting money into sports and football, and they think it's a positive thing. So 46% think it's positive, which we thought was quite interesting. Um, but yet again, 33% didn't actually know much about it and weren't that interested. Um, there was 47% support for the UAE investments in renewables. So again, going back to that trade point, but 31% didn't even know about it. So there is a sense that if you're, again, British trade minister, and you're thinking about these things, if you are going to be focused on what does the electorate think, you probably would, would not doing a good job of educating them enough about these things. However, I will say that we found 56% of those we polled saw Iran as a threat to the UK and the world, and 11% saw it as a threat, but not to the UK. And I thought that was quite interesting, that the Iranian nuclear issue is one of the few that actually gets attention. Um, and 59% see China as a threat. And as we will talk about now, as China's influence grows in the region, it really is something that perhaps the Brits see as a threat, but most people in the region would say, please don't start treating this as a threat, and let's think about what the world looks like in the next 5, 10, 20 years. Mina, thank you very much. And I should say we're going to have a discussion here and there will be an opportunity towards the end of the session for audience Q&A. So I know you're probably going to have lots of questions. Bear with us. Mina, if I can just pick up on something that you said, people don't know what the UK stands for. Do you think the UK knows what it stands for? And I'll ask the same to John. Um, I think Often as journalists, we say the UK and we mean the government, but it's really as a country. I think individuals have their own idea of what their country means for them, but I think that wider narrative point that's coming from the government or from diplomats is, is unclear. So I think yeah. you're probably right. They probably don't know what they stand for. Yeah, I think the, the, you know, the level of white noise out there, uh, you know, I think politics in general is the to look up on five and Way in which commentary is, 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 is raised, and it means it, it, there's a lot of static, and there is nobody leading discussions on what the story is, what the national story is, and what, what it is to be Britain in the world. This isn't just about Brexit, I mean, this goes back actually quite a long way. I think. Uh, we were talking about this in the forum when I was still in the forum about you know, the, when we talk about the strategy of various other things. What is it that we do in the world? Um, that, if you like, and I think one of the issues is 
uh, is to do with knowledge of the world. I think this issue you know, that came up in the, in the poll that you did. I mean, it's interesting. I don't know if, if, if 33% who weren't interested in UAE money or Manchester United fans. Uh, it's it's a Liverpool fans, perhaps. I don't know. It's, it's, I think the level, the level of, I think people are so preoccupied with other things at the moment that it's very hard to think about what it is to be written in the world. And I think the days when, when, um, when the Western powers, when the powers have set the agenda globally, uh, have gone. Uh, it's not that we don't have a role in doing this. In a sense, we're still a, a member of, 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 of one of the permanent members of the UN Security Council. We're still a major. Uh, economy, uh, a major uh, 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 military power, and the rest of it. We just haven't decided what it is, how we use that power. Some of this in terms of the Middle East is understanding, I think, what the Middle East and North Africa represents now. Because you have, in, in the end, you have to work with partners. And this issue about partnership in the Middle East is actually itself quite divisive. You look at the debate about Saudi Arabia, for example, about what sort of relationship we or the United States, or France, or whoever should have with, 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 uh, with Prince Mohammed bin Salman and the new Saudi Arabia. It's, 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 it's often quite, um, uh, quite a sharp debate. I mean, people say, we talk about human rights and all this sort of stuff. But Saudi Arabia is not one man. Saudi Arabia is always a whole set of different things. And it is too important to the region, and therefore, in my view, to us and to the world, uh, to be simply uh, put aside as, as, as a country you can't have a proper relationship with, which is something you see in the United States. So whether the Biden administration's um, position on Saudi Arabia has evolved from President Biden saying, I'm someone Saudi Arabia should be blind, to the fist bump and then the, and then, and then the last meeting. You know, so it, it's... You've got to have... And some of this is about the nature of the diplomatic service itself, right? and that's the sort of representation you have in the region. I was going to ask, do you think, here's a narrative, tell me if you agree with it. Um, back when history had ended, uh, around 2006, I think it was, we thought history might have ended, and we believed that, perhaps the West believed that exporting our liberal democratic values was the right thing to do, because it was the right thing for everybody else. And a sense of national self-interest became kind of a dirty word. That's not something we do because we're enlightened and we don't like to think of our own self-interest, we think about others. But of course, self-interest is the basic building block of diplomacy. If I know, even if I don't think your self-interest is very enlightened, John, I can, I can negotiate with you because I think you do have a sense of self-interest. Mina, do you think that's the case? Do people think that the UK has lost a sense of self-interest? Is it a dirty word and should it be? I think people outside of the UK are a bit more cynical. I don't think they think that the UK stopped caring for its self-interest and was trying to export good things to the world. Um, perhaps the UK likes to think of itself that way, as do the Americans, but I think that's one of the problems, actually. This kind of idea that somehow three or four countries hold a higher moral ground than everybody else, and therefore everybody should fall in line, could have potentially hold, held ground if Iraq and Afghanistan had gone in different ways. Most people were cynical that they could, but then it was, you know, proof in the pudding that that's not the case. I think that's part of the problem, is trying to pretend that there isn't self-interest. I think the UK and every country should work in its interest and the interest of its people, and always did, but tried to give this veneer that, you know, most people didn't buy. And so now it's like, okay, can you go back to 
realpolitik and, and, and have a, a serious conversation about why actually your interest, whoever that country is, and Britain's interest meeting is good for the world. Um, and I think, you know, it's a case of globalization also. This, you know, again, ties in very strongly to a moment when the, you know, WTO was seen as the premier organization. It was going to be open trade, open borders. UK no longer stands for open trade, open borders. Um, and I agree with you. I don't think it all started with Brexit, but I think Brexit crystallized when people are like, for outsiders, this is a conversation that we don't even really understand um, or want to be part of if you're a non-European country. And so I think that image that it's no longer open to the world, despite the efforts of um, other prime ministers to talk about global Britain, it didn't really catch on because, again, what is the UK's self-interest in global Britain at a time when there's much more a, an image of borders going up rather than being open to the world? John, so we are, do we have self-interest but dress it up in other stuff or have we got a rather occluded sense of our own self-interest? Well, I, I think we've been through a 25 a quarter of a century of, of, of simple-minded moralizing quite honestly. And I think it goes back, I mean, maybe before, certainly back to Robert Cook's speech in whatever it was 1998 when he talks about, you know, an ethical foreign policy whatever the hell that means. I mean, foreign policy has never really been, I mean, foreign policy is as, as, as ethical foreign policy can be. It, it, it was never, uh, people will try to do the right thing, but in the end, the responsibility of government is to its own people, uh, not to the world. Now, you can argue that actually by, you serve your people best by, by, by serving uh, uh, certain principles uh, externally, which is true. So it, it, it's, always, it's, it's not nice to cozy up to, 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 to dictate to Hitler and Stalin or whoever. Um, there has been a sense in which people thought the Middle East it, it, at various points, certain things in the Middle East have been analogous. I think Saddam, I mean, no, but Saddam was a bad man. On the other hand, you know, you overthrow Saddam. And you remove a Poland against against Iran. And, and the removal of Saddam is a thing that enabled Iran to colonize uh, Iraq uh, uh, and uh, later on uh, uh, Syria and then join the Hub of Lebanon. What you see in Lebanon and Syria and Iraq are, are states which have been uh, which have been subordinated to the interests of, of armed groups within those states. And in, in, in the case of Syria, the circumstances. Lebanon as well, of becoming narco-states linked into a, a much wider uh, uh, global network of criminal activity. Uh, is that a good thing? No, it's a disastrous thing. Do I think it's a good thing that Saddam is Yeah, yes. On the other hand, the idea you root Saddam and democracy breaks out, it's just, it's for the words. It's, it, it, it's not going to happen like it never is going to happen like that. Um, and we stop paying attention, I think, and part of the problem. I mean, it, it, same in Libya in 2011, you know, you go into the world and then you, you really do have to think about what happens after. And I think if you look at the way we understood the Arab Spring, the Arab Spring for me was never about democracy. The summit was about accountability, was about accountability, was about people wanting agency in their own lives until certain things told. A lot of it was about good governance, much better governance, and governments that produce services, security, services, jobs, and a better life. And I think we understood, I think we I think this was really white men this as as a cry for the for Western models of democracy. With the problem of it's not that uh, the European provincial government is not in any sort of democracy, but it was misunderstood. And now you, you see what's happening in the Gulf, in Saudi Arabia, or whatever you think about what happened in Salmani. He's, he's incredibly popular with it, on the young Saudis. And most people in the Middle East are young, they, they're between the age of 19 or 35, depending on which country you're this, this is a target audience. What do they want? Actually, you can tell to, to a certain extent what they want because there, are, there, there is public. There is the Arab Barometer, 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 there is the Arab Barometer
and said, Luigi wants to go, but it's still a negation. And it's going with other people. You can buy much too. But what they want is not one of the guys with burdens and beards and telling them what to do, but they want a better life. They want certain social freedoms. They want jobs. They want economic growth. They want a sense of purpose. They want uh, um, a sense of pride in the country. All the things you see in Saudi Arabia. And yet people argue about what, what is our relationship with Saudi Arabia. So there's, there's a sort of dysfunctional um, uh, way of thinking about, about, about these issues, which we still haven't got over. Um, so you need, you know, you need a hard-headed approach to understanding what your interests are. And our interests are served by helping people in the region get those good things that they all want. That's where we need to position ourselves. And if, if I can just follow up on that. Completely agree. And this idea of good governance, legitimacy through competence, yeah. that people want competent governance that can deliver. And I don't think that's too different from anywhere in the world, right? So this idea of, but competence requires transparency and requires accountability. And those are the things, again, that the UK is respected for. And I think that there is a lot that the UK offers in terms of transparency, rule and order, Law, rule of, law, rule of law, and all of these kind of basic principles that people respect. And it's unfortunate that when we say democracy, most people are like, well, what does democracy deliver and so forth? But I think we got so hung up on the term rather than talking about, well, actually, what does it what does it provide? And what freedoms are guaranteed to people? And what do those freedoms look like? And unfortunately, in the Middle East, actually, the freedom to be safe, yeah. that in itself almost became impossible. And that's what people are looking for. Somewhere where I can raise my kids and they're safe. And somewhere where I can provide good uh, hospitals and health care. And that, again, is you know something that people look to the UK, look to other countries, and say, what do those systems look like and how can we learn? Can I just add one thing to that? I mean, it's interesting in a lot. When I was in 2003, one of the consequences of the population and the massive insecurity of violence happened is that families were not sending their kids, particularly their girls, to school. And I think, you know, this is, you talk to families. They want their kids to be able to go to school and get an education and have a better life than they do the parents everywhere. That is not possible in terms of when, when, when the, the, the place is insecure and safe. Security is a fundamental building block for everything else that follows from that. It's not the end state, but you have to have that before anything else can happen. So, you know, part of the Middle East is not a particularly stable place, but if you, if you want to get to the project, you have to help people build that sort of school. So, Societal stability and security. And it's in the UK's interest to have a secure and stable Middle East. And that's clear. And again, it's in people's interest there. So there are moments like that where, that's why I said, the security element is actually such a big part of when people look to Britain or look to relationships that they want to have with countries. is about, let's have safety and stability first and then build up from that. And again, education, hugely important. The British Council yeah. is probably one of the most important symbols of the UK outside of the UK. And unfortunately here, most people are like, you know, they roll their eyes on it, they're not interested. But actually, hugely important, hugely symbolic. DFID, now gone, but again, had, you know, in the Arab world, DFID only worked in um, Yemen, actually. But yet had and such a big, and the West Bank. So those, but again, that had such a big reputation because people realize this is, again, Britain providing aid and so forth, but thinking long-term development. And there's, you know, there's respect yeah. for that.
I'm sure the audience here knows the British Council very well, but if you don't, I really would encourage you to look at the work that they do because it is quite exceptional and I think epitomises a bit like the BBC World Service, a lot of what people have respected in Britain. Now I'm going to give you a very, very simplistic narrative that I've heard when I've been in the region. And it's a narrative I think may have come to Britain's attention as we see in the Russia-Ukraine war that perhaps our allies and friends in the Gulf region have not been in the position that we might have thought they'd have been on Russia-Ukraine and either been neutral or more Russia-leaning than, than we may have hoped or thought. Here's the narrative, and I'm not saying that I agree with it at all. Look, people say... We like to send our kids to school in the UK. We want to have a life of freedom. We want to have a life that feels like life in the West. So you guys are kind of our natural allies, but you guys make it really hard for us. You kind of treat your friends like your enemies and then mistake your enemies for friends. And actually, Russia and China, although we might not want to live under that kind of lifestyle, are much easier allies. They don't lecture us the whole time. If they say they're going to do something, they do it. Uh, because there's not democracy, there is generally a lead around for a very long time, so there's a bit of predictability. What are we supposed to do? How accurate is that narrative, Mina? Um, again, depends who you talk to. I think it has holes in it. And I'll say, I think part of that narrative also, especially when it came to Ukraine and the relationship with Russia, is that Russia shouldn't be completely isolated, and then we try to work things out. And I think there were moments when it was the foreign fighter exchange that happened, when there were moments where you needed interlocutors. I felt like if we shut down our doors, then there, it's very hard to find that, that mediation role. So I think that's one thing. Second, again, when it came to Ukraine, and we were just having this conversation, there's a real sense of don't lecture us about the international order. Because the international order has been breached by the U.S. and the U.K. at times. So please, let's not do this based on moral grounds, but let's talk about this is a disaster. And nobody thought in the region, I have not spoken to a single person who thought, great move by Russia, that's what, that's what the world needed. I mean, everyone was like, this is a disaster. But how do we react to it? And what do we say in public? And what do we say in private? Two different things. So I think there's, 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 and you did say that it's it's a simplistic, it's it's a complex narrative. But so if we the, the Ukraine kind of story, I think is much more complex than is you know just the Gulf is saying that's fine to Russia. They're really not, and I think that's you know that's very very clear for everyone I've spoken to. However, the wider point of the relationship with Russia and China and this thing of it's it's more coherent. We know what they want. We know what we want. And yes, short termism. Uh, before, especially, and again, sometimes how the U.S. is viewed is reflected on the U.K. You know, in the U.S., foreign policy was generally bipartisan, and people didn't, it didn't matter if the Republicans or Democrats came in, the bigger picture story was similar. That's changed. That's completely changed now. And so I think there's the same now in the U.K. that they, especially I think with Labour Party, when Jeremy Corbyn was the leader, they thought that if there was a Labour Party that came in under Jeremy Corbyn, it would completely upend all the traditional relationships that were there. And so there's a sense of, we don't know who we're dealing with and what they're, what they're going to be like in four or five years. So I think that long-term versus short-term has absolutely impacted how the alliances are being built. I agree with everything you said. Um, people talk about the relationship with the Gulf States now or the Gulf with, with uh, Russia and China as if this is a little choice, this is a political choice. Are we doing it to get back to Biden? But I don't think it's true. I've done that. There, there may be some collateral damage to the But they're doing it because the Saudis have decided 
with Saudi interests first. And the same with Emirates. We're putting ourselves first. And of course, for Saudi in particular, the dash for, uh, for economic uh, uh, restructuring through Vision 2030 is huge. They need oil at 90% to get this done. The relationship with Russia is massively important. The relationship with different satellites and the Russian energy people is massively important in managing the uh, global energy markets. This, I mean, I do think this is, this is, this is ultimately a short-term fix because ultimately oil will hit $50 a barrel at some point um, uh, in the future. And that will be a problem for Saudi Arabia. It's kind of spending commitments. But they're doing it because of what's happening inside the kingdom, not because they want to get back at the United States. We interpret it, and this is a bit of a certain case in Washington, certain centre more in Washington. This is a deliberate choice, that this is a, a pivot by the Gulf states to Russia and to China. It's not a political choice. They don't want to be forced to make a choice themselves on terms set by the West. And I understand that entirely. And but ultimately, you know, the Saudis invite Zelensky to have the Ukraine conference in, 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 uh, in general. So they invite Zelensky. So it's not that they're not, yeah, they don't understand what's happening. But it's not a fight that they want or need at the moment. It's the same with Iran. Not people don't want to question with Iran. There isn't a question. It's a parking of a whole set of, 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 uh, of issues. Because they don't need this stuff at the moment when they're trying to do other things. And partly they don't need this stuff because they think the West has not been with them. Because they have, they've not been able to rely on the and just on China, I mean, China is a very, very interesting uh, topic because actually trade between the US and China dwarfs yeah. any trade the Gulf has with China. And so it's always quite interesting when, you know, American diplomats or officials start lecturing people in the region about relations with China. It's like, really? Well, what about you guys? It's in the, you know, billions and billions and billions annually. And yet the Gulf is supposed to hurt its own interests by not having I was going to say, let's, let's talk about the dragon in the room, China, and its sort of gravitational pull it seems to exert on BRICS countries, and we're going to have to find a much longer acronym, I think, as more and more countries join BRICS. Is this something the West should be worried about? Is it heading towards de-dollarisation and the undermining of the West's ability to globally police the world through sanctions? Should the West be worried, or is this just a, a development that can play, take place alongside the traditional structures of, of NATO and the West? Mina. Okay. <laughs> John, do you want to take that? Look, I think de-dollarization is something that has been spoken about for years. Um, it's definitely an arm of the strength of the U.S. at a time that we see that the U.S. is not as domineering as it used to be, although I agree it's still the largest and, and most influential of the superpowers. Um, I do think the speed with which sanctions were imposed on Russia and how quickly everybody kind of rallied on that point was a moment in different parts of the world the countries thought hold on do we really want to be in such a weak position that we can be locked out so i do think there is a moment that the conversation around sanctions and dollars has taken more more of a serious tone than it had before um so that's one one element yes for sure i think there is that conversation but i don't think it's happening anytime soon if it does happen, it will take many, many years. But again, you're seeing these relationships that are being built where a bilateral agreement might be made on a very specific point of trade that actually we won't just use the dollar, we'll use either our own currencies or so forth. So I think we're moving in that direction, part of this greater move where that moment of globalization, capitalism as the world, the post-Cold War moment, 
the, the end of history moment where for a brief moment it seemed like the dollar was the currency of the world. I think we're definitely moving away from that and it is reflective of American foreign policy, reflective of the fear of America's dominance. When it wants to, it can really, it can really wield that power. Um, but I would say also on sanctions, you know, there have been many examples of the failure of sanctions regimes. Talk about Iran, but we also talk about Iraq. You know, what happened from 1990 um, until 2003? Sanctions destroyed Iraq in many ways, but actually didn't weaken the regime. Um, and there are question marks about how sanctions are used. John, you've been nodding. Yeah, I mean, you know, sanctions. Sanctions can work in certain specific circumstances, but they're quite often a blunt instrument. And I think one of the things they've done in the Middle East is help criminalise big, big economies uh, criminal. You saw it in Iraq and Saddam, uh, where they've used all sorts of, uh, all sorts of ways to, 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 to generate dollar earnings, to wholesale boys into to, to, to smuggling oil, and so forth. And you see, you see this across the region, you see it in Iran in particular. It's one of the, one of the reasons why Iran has become such a major. I'm going to interrupt to say, if not sanctions, then what? Because there'll be a lot of people in the audience who say, well, look, you've, you've got to sanction Russia for what it did in Ukraine. You, you've got to yeah. exert some kind of penalty. If not sanctions, what works? Uh, what will work with, with, with Russia is Russia will lose in Ukraine. But that's, 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 that's the argument. Russia has been a at least in the last decade, probably more. Uh, and you know, if they don't, if there wasn't a decisive victory in Ukraine, they would have much more, sure. And this is, this is the argument the Baltics make, is the argument the Poles make. So uh, you're saying a bit more muscularity so, yeah, over Russia? So, over Russia. Yeah. Mm. And I think the, the, the issue about, I mean, with, with, with China, the Rabimbi and so forth, and they have been, they do do some trades in, 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 uh, in, uh, in the Rabimbi and Those are generally point to point trades. Actually, all those trades are effectively in dollars. Um, I mean, if, unless the, the one becomes a fully convertible currency, essentially a reserve currency, it's hard to see the de-dollarisation accelerate. Uh, there's been some withdrawal of the Saudi, uh, 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 Saudi, there's been a drawdown of Saudi T-bill holdings, but there's been a general drawdown of T-bill holdings uh, uh, over the last uh, two or three years, which is a reflection of, I think, balance of trade and trade rates. You know, it's there. People talk about it. I think the, the Americans are probably concerned. They think it's a, they probably think it's a slow puncture. If it's yeah. anything. Um, and, and the SWIFT. I mean, the SWIFT mechanism. So there's talk. I mean, the, just the, the, the SWIFT actually was the, the thing, in my view, the, the, the single thing, the wide right thing. It was the thing that eventually convinced some and I to agree to the talks, the, 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 the secret nuclear talks in Amman with uh, with Jackson and Bill Burns. Because big cut off the international financial system, and they they had. They were blocked from, from, from accessing dollars and euros, basically everything. That was the thing. So that did have an impact. And that then to the GCPO, which of course we all have the history of that. So it, it was, you know. And briefly, to turn to the, the one of the eyes in bricks now, where does India stand on all this? Will the India Gulf Corridor make any distinct difference? Is that a stand against Russia? Where's India, Mina? India is really interesting. I mean, the UAE just signed um, something that they call SIPA, which is the Comprehensive uh, Economic Partnership Agreement, which is another way of saying an FTA, but not. 
Um, and that's hugely important because India actually looks to the Gulf not only for its energy needs, but also, funnily enough, as a conduit to Africa. And, and so there are all sorts of ties that are being formulated between Asia and Africa that isn't about US versus China even though it's often framed that way, but that actually there's a lot in terms of trade, in terms of, you know, great um, rising middle classes, but also the, again, to the point that strategic interests meet. And so I think India has also been really important, as has actually Indonesia, in saying we don't want to go into the non-aligned movement as such, but we don't want to be constantly forced to choose. Is it between America and China? Is it between Europe and Russia? We don't want to be caught in this. So, so India plays a very important role in that, in saying we still have very good ties with the US because it's important to us. Um, and we will, you know, they have a tense relationship with China, but we don't want to, you know, antagonize them and actually want to maintain ties with Russia. And so India is an important player in that, in saying there, there is potentially a third way. Um, what does that look like? But as I said, it's not India alone, it's other significant powers like Indonesia, to a certain extent Malaysia, Turkey's interesting, NATO member, and yet also saying, hang on, I can have my own my own foreign policy. I mean, I think you know, uh, it's the 1820s, the Gulf states, uh, they became, where were ministers from Bombay, as it were, and they were part of the, they were part of the march, they were never ministers from London. That lasted certainly uh, until 1948, uh, and in many ways the Gulf States still look that way. I mean, I mean, Boston, Boston had a huge, back in the day, a huge Parsi community down there, and the, the trade was down to Bombay. That's a natural corridor. Um, India, being a member of the BRICS, of course, with China, means that the BRICS has limited room for maneuver, and it's developing independence and independence system global governance or, or, or trade regimes and so forth because they are rivals. I think this recent issue about the trade corridor is really interesting. Um, uh, there's very little detail about how, what it exactly would mean, whether it, it, it takes in Oman, or whether it takes in Vajera, or to uh, uh, these province up in the Jordan, and then into, into, into Beijing, maybe, and actually it's a really interesting concept. Uh, uh, and I'm not least because I think actually, given the nature of, 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 the, of the Middle East, a lot of freight is far more secure transported over land than it is through the through the through the, 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 the choke points of Congress or, or the Barber Mandel or so it's, it's, it's a really interesting the other thing about it is a massive pro Turkey. Right? It, 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 you've got Erdogan's reaction to it. You know, nothing can move without going to the Turkey. Well, yeah, okay, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. But that but that apologize to the Turkey, but it was it was fun. Now, before I turn to audience Q&A, I'm just going to ask you, sort of in a sense, for a brief wrap-up. We've had a little bit of pessimism. Um, we've talked about short-termism, um, the downside of democracy, particularly just recently, uh, turbulence. Are there things that the UK can easily and realistically do that would turn around the perception of us in the Middle East? Should the Foreign Office be doing anything differently? Should it have different priorities? Can ministers do different things? What realistically can we do? And Mina, I'll come to you first again. <laughs> okay. Um, a number of things. Um, I genuinely do think having uh, a minister at the FCDO that is just focused on the yeah. Middle East gives a signal of, of you know, 
there's one, again, address, there's one, one person to come to. We have Alistair Burt here. I didn't see it when he was here. Um, but now that he's not here, I can say, I and mean, he was incredible when he was Minister of the Middle East North Africa. There was you know, one person, he built those relationships. He was constantly in the region. You know, people like that thing anywhere in the world. He was always talking about, oh, in the Middle East, they like to see face-to-face. -face. Everybody likes that. You know, you build a relationship with trust and so forth. So and does continuity matter? Continuity does matter. And he was, again, he was one of those people that was um, in his position for quite some time and, and came back to it. So I think that's, so that's, that's kind of clear message and signaling. And of course, you know, the, the Prime Minister at the moment hasn't had um, too much spare time and is, and you know, we all know that he's very focused on what does the next general election look like. But again, you know, visits and, and presence and so forth is important. Um, and so I would say, and that, you know, even the royal family, we know that the royal family has very strong ties um, to the region, and, and that's something that the more that is cultivated, the more it is appreciated, especially amongst the, the monarchies of the region. So that's a very kind of, you know, to the point, but, you know, obvious thing to do. But then there's the next level, which is, you know, visas, and what does it look like for the ease of people coming to visit or not? You know, when you have artists being denied visas, to come at major events and festivals in the UK, people question that and say, "What you don't you don't want us to be present when it's a well-known artist?" Um, and again, that kind of cultural um, relationship that really affects people-to-people -people relationships. So that's another one. BBC Radio, Arabic Radio, 75 years. The amount of people, you know, when the 1958 coup d'état happened in Iraq and the end of the monarchy. Everybody I spoke to from that time, I, I, I did a whole study of it, said we knew what was going on because we listened to BBC Arabic. Yep. Suddenly there's no more BBC Arabic radio. When Sudan conflict broke out in April this year, the BBC had to start restart its radio service because they realized how important it was to have a trusted and honest voice explaining what was happening. BBC Radio closing down after all these years is impossible to understand. So I think the role of, again, these institutions of trust, um, universities accepting more students, again, the amount of students I know who no longer even bother to apply to British universities because you you pay something close to a thousand pounds to apply for a student visa, whether or not you get it or not. Um, you're likely not to get um, acceptance because you can actually come and visit. You know, come on, British universities have so much to offer. So I would say that a serious um, effort to show that we want these ties, that there is mutual benefit when it, we have these exchanges would be would be really important. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely agree with that. There was a, there was a, uh, there was a I'm not sure it was famous, but there was a, one of Joe Biden's first visits to um, Joe Biden when Obama was given the responsibility to grow up. And he goes to uh, 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 Masoud Barzani and Masoud and they're talking and he says, look, I understand your pain, you know, I understand your, your desire to be free of the, 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 of the oppression and the rest, but I'm Irish and I understand <laughs> You know, I understand. The, always the, uh, the older, I know. It's, it's okay. uh, you know, I understand that we also hate British. You know, and, and was only said, was appalled. Was my cabinet. I've got British passports. And I think you know, this is, this is, that's gold dust actually. Yeah. Quite honestly, this is a function of the universities, a function of business, a function of London. London is a massive asset for us. I just say to people, you don't have to come to something. Just go, go down. I think we're going down to Knightsbridge, and you meet everybody. Or in Oxford, you see everybody. This issue of attention, paying attention. If you're an oil company, your executives are in the Gulf all the time. They're visiting, they're making, they're building relationships. They're, they're, they're known. Our ministers stop doing that. 
you know, having somebody, I mean, like Alistair, and he was the last one, he was quite rare even then, who knows the people, who, who takes them seriously. They want to be heard as well. I mean, like, you know, it, 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 it's, you can't, you can't overestimate this, you really can't. I think the issue of universities is, is, is massive because the number of people in the Middle East who have been educated in, in, in British universities, I think helping, you know, there are British universities in the government of British universities as well. I think if you look at the way there is clearly a massive gap in the market in the Middle East as a whole for educational institutions, particularly tertiary education and including standards in the market, and that's a big thing. I think it's a, traditionally it would have been a thing for the British Council. I think to a certain extent British Council was in the way as well, actually. Um, and then, you know, it ultimately comes back to the question, how much does the Middle East think the Middle East doesn't have that it matters to us? And that's a much bigger question. I think it matters a lot. There was a great piece, I think, in Foreign Policy and Foreign Affairs this week by Robert Gates, who was the second one George W. Bush, um, which makes the case for the Middle East mattering to the United States, but it doesn't matter to the United States, against people like Walter Meersheim, one final thing I want to ask, and obviously we have a fine example of it here. We've got a, a lot of ex-diplomats, ex-military personnel who know the region extremely well and are known in the region extremely well. Yeah. Do you think we can make better use of that repository of experience, expertise, if, if and wisdom? If money, sure. But, 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 but it's... But I mean, that's important. And I'm going to, of course, I'm going to say it's important. If you look at the demographics of the Middle East, it's overwhelmingly young. And you look at the energy in the Middle East, this is the thing that strikes me, the, the artistic energy, the, the desire to, to, to get on, the the economic... It's, it's massive. It, it's, it's that, you know, you, you don't know people like me or Chris. So you're saying you're past it. <laughs> you do want younger people, you know, it, it's that that fights me. Because they're the future. Thank you. On that note, can I open it up to our audience? There's going to be quite a few hands. I'm going to take three questions at a time, and if I miss you, just wave aggressively and I will eventually find you. So I'm going to take gentleman there, gentleman at the back, and then you, sir, there. Uh, yes, you, you sir. Keith, Keith, yeah. So I might get you to repeat that just so the microphones pick it up and everyone can hear. Uh, thank you. Um, I just wonder if over the last few years we've not been able to subliminate a second series uh, and we were repeating Dean Atchison in 1962. Lost the empire, but yet to find a role. And, and I, I, I wonder if you know the debacle in, in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan is also this the rest of the world that we really are just the poodle of the United States, and therefore we don't have any independent foreign, foreign policy. All this is very sad, but my question is about Iraq. You mentioned Iraq. Um, I, I was last there a long time ago in Parliament, and it always struck me that despite the a highly sophisticated, highly educated uh, country with a very rich history was the ideal, the ideal partner for the West in a very troubled region, which has been carved up thanks to Sykes Pico and, and all the rest in a way that you know, is non-functional in many, in many respects. What chance is there? 
of us ever getting some kind of rapport or rapprochement with Iran. Then the gentleman at the back. Do you see with me as King Charles, the best ambassador for Britain started on friendship, uh, the trust and the uh, 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 relationship has had in the past with the rulers, the kings, the militaries. Would you agree with me? And then finally, and then I'll get you both to answer all the questions, the gentleman here. early on uh, was about ownership of sports clubs and sports washing. Uh, I'm on the kind of advisory board of the and we've discussed this a lot. Um, and generally the argument tends to be we shouldn't allow sports washing. But I'm wondering whether what the panel think about, or maybe if yeah, they do want to come on events, they want to do different things, they want to be culturally more diverse than they are now, they want to clean their reputation, so why don't we, or can we, should we, flip that round and go, yes, you can sports wash. But you do that, not just by spending money here, but by making changes at home. And, and is that a realistic thing that we can do? Is that you ought to do? Thank you. Thank you. So we have Iran, the role of Prince Charles, and sport. King John. King, King oh, my Charles. goodness me, King oh, Charles. It's a tower. <laughs> <laughs> we'll pretend um, that didn't happen. Um, on, on, the, on the monarchy, I mean, I, you know, like, I can't comment. You know, it, it is the, monarchy. the monarchy is a great asset for this country in the region. And, you know, and, and the king has, over decades, developed a whole set of relationships in the region, which, which are not political. And I think that's a great... That's a great thing, because you do need a space which is not political, not just because the Prime Ministers come and go, and come and go well, quicker these days than they used to. Um, so having a continuity, and I remember having a discussion with my Spanish colleague in Rio about this, and he said, well, we need to use, you know, the, 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 the Spanish monarchy more, actually they use the Spanish monarchy not necessarily in the right way, but, but there we are. Um, uh, Iran, the rest of the Sykes-Pico, of course, have never implemented it. You look at the, the, the line. The nearest we got to Sykes-Pico was Dash, actually. It was in Islamic State now. That looks more like, like Sykes-Pico than anything else did. Yes. Uh, I don't think it's, it's simply a case of the, the borders of the, 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 the border that the border find that Serb or Orizan are all the sources of contention. I also said the Dean Atchison quote. Dean Atchison says this is true. This is a year after British troops have gone to Kuwait. To, uh, to, to secure Kuwait against what may or may not have been a threat from Abdul Karim Qasim, from Iraq in those days, and only four years after we put troops into Jordan to stop, to, to stop a similar threat to the Hashemites. So Britain remained active after, after Syria. I think, I think Iraq, the invasion of Iraq, has been disabling in a political way, and I think in that sense, yes, it has led to a crisis of conflict of Middle East issues in the region. Iran, you know, will. It, it, there's been this illusion that Iran will be the partner of choice in the region since, since the Shah. Um, and, um, it, you know, my view is it, it, it won't happen with this regime, um, because they are fundamentally hostile to the West. So it, it, it's just not practical. That's my view. Um, okay, so agreed about... Oh, sorry, four minutes. Yeah, go on. Oh, so I say four minutes? Four um, I mean, you talk about, you know, certain top owners of football clubs. I mean, you know, we, it's, it's, not, it's not that this is a new, a new issue in, in, in British football, in English football. 
issue since since uh, over the last 25 years. I mean, I don't know about Fenway Sports, but it, it, it's, it's been. Um, uh, I think. I think what the Saudis have done, I think, is not alter the nature of the sport. What they've altered is the economics of, of football in particular, uh, at least for the moment. Whether that's sustained or not, I don't know. If you look at the amount of money they're spending on, they have earmarked for various projects, not just football, which represent what the sport represents as a very small part of the amount of money they, they put into the PIF, or they have earmarked against the, the, the mega projects. But it's significant. And, and I, personally, I think what they want from football, from getting Ronaldo or, or Benzema or, or, or these guys is clicks. You actually get social media coverage. That's the initial thing. It's not necessarily you want the domestic leagues uh, 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 or rival European leagues that may come and forget it for various reasons. But you're certainly getting a lot of coverage. Is that sports washing? I mean, nobody stopped, nobody stopped talking about the things they don't like about Saudi Arabia. So I don't think, you know, if it is sports washing, it has to work. Um, it's certainly a way of positioning themselves as a different sort of country for the country that they say they were before 2015 and certainly before 1979. And I think that's, it's that distinction. Mina. Um, just very quickly, on Iran and rapprochement, I think that with the current regime and what it stands for, they don't seem that interested in that. Um, but the Iranian people yeah. are the ones who are suffering the most from the current situation as it stands, be it sanctions, be it what the regime does and everything. So I agree with you, the Iranian people um, deserve much better and actually are not just educated, the culture they have and everything, but again, that's what makes them part of this region that is rich with you know, culture and different histories and so forth. Um, and, but I agree there's also a crisis of confidence that has emerged from the Iraq war and that you know, the UK kind of hasn't fully owned it. I don't think, you know, we've had the Chilcot require and we've had conversations about it in Parliament and so forth, but I think in the, and on a wider level, there hasn't been an ownership of actually that there are good things that the UK does, and that price of confidence needs to be known over. Role of King Charles, hugely important. Um, he spoke about the ties between religions and the ties between cultures before it became fashionable. And actually, what he stands for, and, and the kind of the, the seminal speeches he gave, the moments that he brought pe people together when he was Prince Charles, before becoming King, King Charles was hugely important and gave an indication of what people like about the UK and being open to the world. And I think he's, he's a great asset in that sense and, and the rest of the monarchy. Um, on issue of sports clubs, you know, I always, it, it fascinates me that a country that allowed um, Chelsea Football Club to be bought by somebody who actually would have liked their money to be uh, seen in a different light didn't really have a problem but has a problem when it comes to the golf. And I think this is part of that. You know, you don't hear sports washing being used when other sources of money are being used in British football clubs. So I, I think it goes to that wider atti attitude, really, when it comes particularly to the golf. That's, you know, almost looking down on them, unfortunately, when in reality it should be, well, yes, why is this money coming in and how has sports generated? I mean, look at FIFA. We could have a completely separate conversation about FIFA and what it's meant in terms of how money comes into football. But I think bigger question here is about that relationship through sports that I think is actually very positive. And, you know, again, we saw with the Qatar World Cup started very, very negative. But once the football started, actually brought people together. People had great experiences who went there. And we should encourage more of that. Right, we have, if, uh, if we're able to keep answers and questions short, we have time for some more. Uh, Chris, gentlemen there, 
the uh, gentleman there and gentleman there first. I'm going to pull this back from football, <laughs> yes. I'm afraid. Let's assume that there's been a lot of talk about Mohammed bin Salman. Let's assume that he's halfway through his, his project in Saudi Arabia. What do you think he wants it to look like in five years' time? And what do you think he wants to do in terms of reshaping the region, uh, say in five, ten years' time? What's, what's the end of it? Thank you very much. And microphone over here at the front. Um, I'm Leo. I'm 16 years old. I come from Northampton. And I was just wondering um, how can we get young people in my generation? We need how, can we get? how can we get young people in my generation? Um, we need future ministers to be more interested in international politics and the you tell us. You tell us what would make you more interested. <laughs> and the gentleman there. Uh, hello, my name is Willie Sterling. I started coming from the Treasure Women Project in Jordan, working with British Council to produce radio, drama, also theatre and film uh, in, uh, with Syrian refugees. And um, I've also got family as Julia Galpin. And as a boy, I was dabbling on the knee of Sheikh Zayed in Southern um, my question is this, we spend a bit of time moaning about the decline of our influence, whether it's uh, education, sport, a, lot of, a, lot of, a, a range of soft power uh, uh, places. Do we need to actually have a proper joined up policy, possibly governed by the Foreign Office, but with a lot of other institutions to make sure we've got more young, rising middle class students coming to Britain rather than the U uh, US, uh, to make sure that we can get Radio Arabic back up and, and, and Radio Persian too, that's gone too and it's a disgrace that that's happened but we are allowing these things to happen it is our will that we should we, if we want this to happen, we have to make it happen we have to make it joined up other countries do this in a very different way and we are failing on this and we, after Brexit we need to fight for our place in the world and earn our living yeah, the answer is yes it's, you know, the UK is seeding ground. It's ground that has, and it's willingly giving enough. And there are two other questions as well on both MBS at the sort of at the so-called end of his project, although, of course, Vision 2030 doesn't end there, and how on earth do we get young people involved and interested in the Middle East? Um, you know, I think one of the most fascinating things about Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia at the moment is this can-do attitude. Um, and that we're going to shoot for the moon, and if we land amongst the stars, then we haven't done too badly. 
Um, and I think that's, you know, it, from, what, from what I understand from my many trips to Saudi Arabia and speaking to people who work on these various projects, it is that sense that we are, we're in a race against time because actually Saudi Arabia had stagnated for so long on a lot of these issues that they want to make up. And I think Mohammed bin Salman would be satisfied to a certain extent in five years' time, in ten years' time, if he saw that Saudi Arabia was living up to its potential. And, that, and then going, you know, the extra mile. Um, I think the impact on the region is, is huge, um, especially when we talk about what it means to be Muslim and not being cut off from the world. And for many, many Muslims, that's a natural state. That's how it should have been. And so actually, it has a, a very important political and uh, religious symbolism of what that means, but it doesn't mean that it comes without being challenged. And I don't think it's all going to be one line trajectory, and that's something to look out for. Um, I think for young people in international affairs, it is part of a wider conversation about public discourse and how people are being educated, what they're learning from. So part of it is people in our, in our stage of our lives working harder and better at making it more accessible and understandable and why it matters. But also it is, you know, unfortunately, our part of the world, the Middle East, feels less safe even though it is safe so to go out and travel and experience and get excited and interested in these parts of the world which unfortunately COVID hasn't helped you know three years nearly of no travel but also concerns about security meant that people weren't as comfortable going and backpacking and learning the language which they used to do and I think the more we can encourage again universities and schools and philanthropists to put up the money and the programs that allow people to come and experience it that more than anything else will, will get people excited and then they become champions and, and it can spread out. I agree with all of that. On, on, on the ABS, <coughs> I think he sees himself as, as, a, as, a, as a re-founder of the kingdom. Um, uh, after the launch, uh, he says it took like 79, and we can argue about the history of this, but I mean, there's clearly something, and there was stagnation, but also sort of ways. It's a very new way of doing things. There's no longer the traditional family with, with different branches owning different bits of bureaucracy, one man in charge. Um, and I think he sees equally probably not as himself or other resounders of, of states. He's people have been debated them. I think this um, uh, Vision 2030 is, is, is one stage, as he said in the Fox interview last week, that, that, that something that's going to continue in the future. And I think what it's done is energize a lot of people, um, uh, particularly young people. And it's given them a sense that there's something really ambitious. That they, I think Robert is too ambitious myself. But maybe you had to have that level of. Vaulting ambition and into the and to jolt people out of, 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 of this trough that got themselves into. And particularly close down the religious discourse in the kingdom. The, 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 the sort of Salafi, um, uh, the um, uh, Willa Ulvarea sort of um, uh, um, uh, attitude that comes out of the mid 19th century this idea that we, have to, that we are alone against the world and we need to reject things that aren't Salafi, that aren't us. This new openness. I, mean, I, I always think of Vatican II when, when, when John, was, uh, John the 23rd said the Catholic Church needs an enjoyment this is this opening to the world. Because the Catholic Church had been closed since, since, since the mid 19th century. Basically. You open to the way you open the windows. That's what he's done, it's open the windows. I think, I think he needs a lot of things to happen. In particular, he needs to make Saudi Arabia a welcoming environment for no investment. FDI is, is one of the key indicators that he himself has proposed, and they're not getting enough at the moment. He needs it. So you need a whole set of other things to happen. 
But you know, he's going to be there for the next 40 years, maybe long. Uh, he's the guy. And this is the direction he wants to take the country. And it, it, it is it is inspired a lot of theory. You know, people talk about the authoritarianism and like a, like a, a, a free speech movement, all which is true. And I think some of this is unnecessary. But he's, he is very popular among young people. You know, given when blind people think this is, this, is, this, is, this is another sort of soft view. Actually, it's huge. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're an ordinary Saudi family, most Saudi families are earning you know, 20, 30,000 dollars a year, it's not a huge amount of money, you're spending a lot of it on drivers. Um, and now you're not. And you can go and work. You, know, you, you see the big female deployment rate, participation rate going from 20 to 36 percent. It's huge. There's a lot more that needs to be done. And I think, personally, you probably need to dial down some of the more dramatic announcements of a you know, massive development up in the desert. But, but he's changed the discourse. And that is a first. And we were telling Santa Saudi for years. You need to reform, you need that. And then it happens, and then people start requesting things. It's in our interests. I mean, a senior Gulf leader have said to me, we have Saudi Arabia, it's too important. We have to. Saudi Arabia has to succeed. And I think that's fundamental. It's in all our interests if Saudi Arabia succeeds. John, thank you very much indeed. Um, thank you very much to you. You've been a great audience, as they say. If you're interested in other events that CMEC is putting on in its debate series, you will find leaflets on your seat or in front of you. If you scan the QR code, which is on there, you will be able to sign up for free, which is a bit nuts, um, to our daily update, briefing for MPs, but you can sign up too, which is a, a rundown of all the stories going on from the region and in the region. John's endorsing it. Thank you very much, John. And if you want to continue talking about Gulf states in particular, at TBI in the International Lounge, there is another event at five o'clock where you can continue the conversation. So to our speakers, Sir John Jenkin, Mina Arabi, and to you, the audience, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.